welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Uh, today, the Supreme Court seems poised to repeal Roe versus Wade. Our guest today will discuss the history of women of color's involvement in the reproductive rights movement, what have been the focus areas, and the fight to have children, as well as the right to abortion. We speak with Loretta Ross, activist, uh, professor. She has been part of the women's movement for decades and a founder of Sister Song. And also, the Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer is planning to bring President Joe Biden's social spending and climate bill to the floor as early as the week of December 13th. This according to press reports. We speak with Anna Aurelio, the Federal Campaign Director of Economic Security Project Action to get an update on the lay of the land. And we also will hear a talk given by Leslie Voltaire, Haitian-based Leslie Voltaire, who gives the context, the history of the struggle for the Haitian people for democracy. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, um, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. And we draw out how those of us um, most impacted, as I said, are responding. We also discussed the interrelationship between art and politics. Now we'll go to our news headlines. Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. President Biden is unveiling a winter campaign to fight COVID-19. He's set to require private insurers to cover the cost of at-home COVID-19 tests, although that requirement may not kick in until January. The administration says it's making 50 million self-administered tests free for older people and other at-risk groups for pickup at senior centers and community sites. He'll also tighten testing requirements for people entering the U.S., regardless of vaccination status. His administration will extend the requirement that people wear masks on airplanes, trains, and public transit through mid-March. Biden is also emphasizing a more urgent campaign for people to get COVID-19 boosters. A San Francisco resident is the first in the nation to be identified as infected with the Omicron variant. State health officials said the person had traveled to South Africa, was between the ages of 18 and 49, fully vaccinated but not boosted at the time of travel. The person had mild symptoms. Health and political leaders had said it was only a matter of time before Omicron was detected in the U.S. and credited the individual for getting tested and reporting the infection. More from Christina Onestead. California Governor Gavin Newsom says it was inevitable and hailed the state's leadership in biotechnology for the find. He spoke at an event to promote vaccinations in Merced, noting 91% of California adults have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. This was predicted um, and it Again, it's not surprising the state of California because of its sequencing and because of its aggressive testing protocols, including, by the way, creation of our own state testing lab 
in the work we continue to do to lean in and, uh, and not be shy in terms of being led by science. Newsom also expressed confidence in the state's efforts to control the virus and says he doesn't anticipate imposing another stay-at-home order or other shutdown measures. That's the same message coming from San Francisco officials. San Francisco Public Health Director Grant Colfax praised the infected person for reporting their symptoms, noting they were vaccinated and have since fully recovered. I'm Christina Onestead. The conservatives who now form a solid 6-3 majority on the U.S. Supreme Court signaled they may be ready to overturn nearly 50 years of legalized abortion. The justices seemed inclined to let stand a Mississippi law banning abortion after 15 weeks. Mary Sherman reports. Mississippi Solicitor General Scott Stewart urged the U.S. Supreme Court to uphold the state's law banning abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy before viability. We're running on 50 years of Roe. It is an egregiously wrong decision. The case challenges the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that made abortions a constitutional right. Stewart argued Roe takes away the state's ability to protect a life, which Justice Sonia Sotomayor said was a religious view. When does the life of a woman and putting her at risk enter the calculus? Meanwhile, Justice Samuel Alito and other conservatives appear to lean toward limiting abortion rights. Can a decision be overruled simply because it was erroneously wrong? Thousands rallied outside the court during argument. I'm Mary Sherman for Pacifica Network in Public News Service. A 15-year-old boy has been charged with murder and terrorism for a shooting that killed four fellow students and injured others at his Michigan high school. Prosecutor Karen McDonald said the shooting was premeditated based on a mountain of digital evidence against Ethan Crumbly. She explained why she was charging the high school sophomore as an adult. First, the seriousness of the crime this person committed under Michigan law. There are crimes that the legislature has said are so serious that a person who commits them can automatically be charged as an adult. First-degree murder is the most serious of all those crimes. A judge ordered the teen held without bond and transferred from a juvenile facility to jail. McDonald said charges are being considered against Crumbly's parents. She said owning a gun means securing it properly, locking it, and keeping the ammunition separate. Voting rights activist Stacey Abrams announced she'll make another run for governor of Georgia. Her announcement could set up a rematch against Republican Governor Brian Kemp four years after her narrow defeat. It led her to create a nationwide voting rights organization that helped Georgia elect Joe Biden president and two Democratic senators. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection has voted to pursue contempt charges against Jeffrey Clark. The former Justice Department official has refused to answer the committee's questions. The committee, however, has agreed to let Clark come back for another try. Clark's lawyer says he wants to invoke his right against self-incrimination. The committee chair says he believes Clark's attempt to return is a last-ditch attempt to delay the select committee proceedings, but the panel has agreed to try to interview him again. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. Of Sojourner Truth, a lot at stake uh, in Congress before the holiday break. Uh, President Biden's care economy agenda in the form of the Build Back Better Act that passed the House is now in the Senate. And here to fill us in on the lay of the land, uh, the latest uh, concerns, what's in the bill, 
what might be cut, um, what's under threat. We'd like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Anna Aurelio, who is the federal campaign director of the Economic Security Project Action. Now, Anna has been in the trenches fighting for public interests for nearly three decades. Anna, thank you for joining us. Morning. How are you? Okay. So, Anna, we're trying to get now a lay of the land, a lot of nervousness about what's going to happen. First of all, the uh, President Biden's framework that he issued before he left for COP26 in the Build Back Better Act, what actually passed the House is a bit different than that. Tell us uh, what the differences are and where things sit now uh, in the Senate. Anna. Sure. Um, so I'm Anna Aurelia with Economic Security Project, and um, the, the House passed a Build Back Better Act that included some real improvements on the president's framework. So first, it included paid family leave, uh, and second, and this is the thing that my organization focuses on because we're working to build economic power for all Americans. Um, second, the House actually improved the framework on the monthly expanded child tax credit. Um, this was a tax credit that before really left out um, the poorest children in the country. And uh, with the American Rescue Package that got passed earlier this year, it included the poorest children. Um, so that means that um, half of black and Latino um, families that were cut out of receiving the full credit will now get it and have been getting it on a monthly basis since July. And it's already lifted 3.6 million children out of poverty. What the House bill did um, was that it restored eligibility to little dreamers. Um, that is immigrant children that used to be eligible for the tax credit um, before the Trump tax law actually shut them out. So that's a, that's a big improvement as well. Right. So um, there's also so so what are the concerns right now as it is in the Senate? Um, one big concern, I imagine, is whether the vote will actually uh, take place, especially I do. I do. I have heard that there seems to be a deal that would avoid a government shutdown. And we know that conservative Republicans were actually pushing uh, for a government shutdown, if one is to believe that. Um, but. As you understand it, where are things standing now in the Senate? Because Senate Majority Leader uh, Charles Schumer, he is saying that he will bring uh, this bill uh, to the floor by, uh, you know, mid-December. And a lot of uh, families that are getting the monthly child tax credit are really nervous about whether that's going to continue. As you said, it's lifted uh, millions of children out of poverty. And then there is the December 15th deadline. And tell us about that deadline and the significance of it, especially if Congress doesn't act to extend particularly the child tax credit. Yeah, so one of the things we're seeing in the Congress is that, you know, uh, corporate special interests and the entire Republican Party is really bent on blocking the bills back better, and that's, that's really been frustrating. This bill should have been passed back in June, right? Families need to be able to count uh, on these um, tax credits. They need to be able to count on other things. We need to be able to act on climate. All of these things are in the Build Back Better Act, 
and um, and it, it's just been so frustrating as a as a federal advocate in D.C. to see how effective they've been at delay. Um, the real deadline comes at the end of the year because the last monthly child tax credit payment comes on December fifteenth, and we want to make sure that families, especially low-income families who have been um, spending most of this child tax credit on basic necessities like food and rent and utilities, um, that they know they're going to be able to count on this going into the new year. And so Congress really does need to send the Build Back Better Act to the president by the end of the year in order to make sure that these monthly checks keep coming. So we've heard Schumer saying that that's what he wants to do, but we also see that there's so many other things happening in the Senate right now. You know, they're, they're focusing on the $700 billion a year defense authorization bill, for example, and that's gotten bogged down. Um, as you pointed out, there's a, there's, there's a crying need to, to keep the government running, right? Basic funding for the government. That's the only thing Congress has to do every year is just pass the, the bills to keep the government running and the Republicans are even holding that up. Um, they just announced uh, a plan this morning to do that, to extend that into February, but we'll see if we can get that through the Senate as well. So unfortunately, there's a lot of things piling up at year's end. And, and you know, just like, like teenagers who don't get their assignments done until Sunday night, um, they've left it all to the end of the year now. And unfortunately, that'll have real consequences to millions of families across the country if they don't get it done. Yeah, so a, a lot of nervousness then with whether that uh, for fa- for families who have been getting the child tax credit uh, payments in a monthly way, whether this will be the last one or not. Uh, so if Congress doesn't act, it might very well be. But what about for those families who did not opt to get the payment on a monthly basis? Are they still going to be getting some money around tax time? Uh, for the child tax credit, uh, Anna? Yeah, so if nothing happens, if Congress doesn't extend the Build Back Better Act um, and doesn't extend the child tax credit, the way the American Rescue Plan worked is it it sent out half of the child tax credit payments as an advance payment monthly starting in July. So there are six payments ending December 15th. And then families, when they file taxes, early next year would get the rest as a lump sum, and that would be it. Um, If families actually didn't opt to get any of the monthly payments, then they would get it all as a lump sum, uh, again, early next year when they file taxes. Right, and do they have to, I mean, will this be automatic for for people who weren't getting it monthly? Do they have to apply or do something to make sure that they will get the money in a lump sum when they file taxes? And we also know that uh, there was a a way for people who don't file taxes uh, to be able to access the child tax credit, the non-filer portal. But from what I understand, that portal has been shut down. So for our listeners who are, you know, anxious and and want to know about what cash they're going to have, what are we looking at? Anna Aurelio. Yeah, so if families didn't file taxes um, and didn't get the stimulus payments, unfortunately, the non-filer portal that the IRS set up and, and advocates really pushed them to do, that, that got shut down in November, and we assume that they will reopen that around tax time next year. So that's, that's the recommendation for families that didn't file taxes at all. There are um, VITA sites that help people do that, so people should go to those sites 
and, and get that. Um, if people had filed taxes, if they had opted out of the monthly child tax credit, um, then they should get the lump sum automatically when they file taxes next year. Right. And and it is a significant amount of money we're talking about. I mean, that was six, uh, $3,600 per child if the child is below six years of age and $3,000 per child for children between uh, six and 17. And um, the thresholds are less than $150,000 for couples and $112,500 um, for uh, single, $112,500 for single uh, parents. So it is a, a significant amount of, of money here. So the, you know, not that you have any, any predictions here because anything could actually happen, but uh, one would assume that President Biden uh, would not perhaps have announced his, uh, you know, his framework without having some confidence that this could get through the Senate. <laughs> Any worries around that, uh, Anna? <laughs> the, the, the thing that I'm most worried about is just politics in the Senate, right? And the fact that the Republicans are trying to jam everything up and trying to block everything. Every day of delay is costing us, is costing families around the country. So I think the White House has its shoulder to the wheel. The Democratic leadership in the Senate has their shoulder to the wheel. Um, and though, um, we need people calling their senators and saying this is too important. You know, we need to keep these monthly child checks coming um, and we need to make sure that we have the certainty that they're going to keep coming and we can be able to, you know, to meet our monthly bills. That's been the power of the monthly child tax credits is the bills come due every month and so does the child tax credit payments. So we need to keep them going. So I do think, um, you know, your listeners in particular are great activists and having people contact their Senate offices and say, look, this is super urgent. There is a deadline coming up and we need to make sure we don't blow it. Uh, right. And uh, of course, there are activist um, groups around the country uh, that are working to continue to put pressure on members of Congress. I understand this on uh, December 9th, there's going to be a Twitter storm on December uh, 15th. There is a call for press conferences, either in person or virtual press conferences uh, to be held. The significance of that date uh, being the last uh, check that will go out this year. This is specifically around the child tax credit. Uh, so we will post that information also on our website, on the Sojourner Truth website. And I know you're really pressed for time before you dash, though. What about immigrant families with a ITIN number? Because um, is this something that is is a worry with whether or not that will remain uh, in the act as specifically in relation to the child tax credit? Look, so many of us are fighting to make sure that stays in because we're talking about up to a million uh, little dreamers and other immigrant children whose families actually file taxes with ITIN numbers. And they used to get the child tax credit um, before the Trump tax law cruelly cut them out. And we think they should continue to get that. These are also um, some of the families that are providing the essential work during the pandemic. They've been on the front lines. Um, and these are also pam families who are disproportionately Latino and low income. And so this is this could be a real lifeblood for those families. So we, we will keep fighting very, very hard 
um, to make sure that that stays in and we restore the eligibility um, for those families. And is there a website for people who want to know more about the Economic Security Project that people can go to? Oh, yes. Thanks for asking. It's economicsecurityproject.org. And we have a whole section on the child tax credit um, fact sheets, state-by-state information that people can look up and get involved. Right. And of course, no, there's a lot more in this, uh, the Build Back Better Act around um, child care, around home care workers, around uh, access to early education. So there's a, a lot writing here. But we know that you have to dash and get back to uh, doing your work to make sure all of this happens. Anna Aurelio, thank you so very much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Margaret. And thanks for all that you're doing. All righty. Um, what we are going to do now, we're going to take actually an early station break. And then coming up, we have a, a, a piece, a, a lot going on on the ground in Haiti, as uh, you well know. And we will be hearing from Leslie Voltaire, who is on the ground in Haiti, uh, explaining, giving us some context of all of this as we're trying to assess uh, what is going on, what is the situation on the ground. And then Loretta Ross, founder of Sister Song, will be joining us on the whole struggle for reproductive rights. So stay with us. We'll be right back. We shall not, we shall not be Shall not, we shall not be moved like a tree that's planted by the water. We shall not be moved. Union is behind us. We shall not be moved. The union is behind us. We shall not be just like a tree that's planted by the Okay, this is uh, Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. That song was We Shall Not Be Moved by Mavis uh, Staples. If you've missed any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth, you'll be 
you will be able to hear the show in its entirety and you can subscribe to a free podcast. Uh, if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. You can also check out our website at SoTrueRadio.org, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at SoTrueRadio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the U.S. and Des Moines, Iowa, in Des Moines, Iowa. And internationally, I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud uh, listeners in Spain. We are now going to turn our attention to Haiti. Those of you who follow Sojourner Truth, you know that we uh, cover Haiti regularly. A lot of misinformation out there, a lot of uh, people not understanding what's going on, hearing about all the chaos that's being reported on the ground um, even before um, the assassination of Jovenel Moïse, uh, Haiti's president. But you know what? The Haitian grassroots, they have been struggling since 1804 with the Haitian Revolution where they defeated uh, the French and ended uh, slavery in Haiti and led the way for the ending of slavery throughout the Americas. They have had to basically face off with uh, not only France but the United States and uh, colonial powers who seem determined Uh, for Haiti to fail. Let us go now to hear from Leslie Voltaire. He is on the ground in in Haiti, and he is active um, with with the the groups that are really trying to get a true democracy on the ground in Haiti, Lavalas as well as others. Let us go to that clip now from Leslie, of Leslie Voltaire. Haiti's political crisis is an immigration crisis, a noisance for the region, and a governance one for the Haitians. It is structural and must be analyzed as a process of deconstruction of the Haitian neo-colonial state, rebuilt by the US occupation and impoverished by the French ransom of independence. It is a repressive state whose mission was to control the peasants through a gendarmerie overseeing the rural areas with the section chiefs supported by the military district officers. And the Duvalier added a militia of 300,000 Totomakut, bogeymen, to that repressive apparatus. For the, from 1804 to 1986, the majority of the population had been terrorized by dictators, autocrats, governing for a small educated black and mulatto elite who concentrated the economic power with foreign merchants, mainly French and Germans, who controlled the banking system. At the turn of the 20th century, the Syro-Libanese arrived and gradually became part of that elite. For the US government, the Monroe Doctrine implied an intervention as the most effective strategy for state building because in its point of view, Haiti could not recover from the failures of government without US external interference to help create a new bureaucracy. During the US occupation, the US government and investors did a special division of production. They created sugarcane plantations and mills in Cuba and the Dominican Republic and organized the migration of Haitian labor to these plantations. This is why we still have 
half a million of Haitian descendants in Cuba and a million in Dominican Republic. But this intervention encouraged a sense of national identity and to population organized to end the 19 years occupation, first through armed guerrilla and later through strikes and civil disobedience actions. Between 1962 and 68, Francois Duvalier opened the gates for the first migration to supply Haitian teachers, doctors, intellectuals, and technicians during the decolonization of French Africa and the Revolution Tranquille in Quebec, Canada. Because of this human rights abuse and his dictatorship, Haiti was not part of the Alliance for Progress program for Latin America. When he died, the U.S. supported his son, Jean-Claude, as the new president for life and promoted Haiti as the Taiwan of the Caribbean. Investments were made in the industrial park in Port-au-Prince, which attracted workers from the countryside. But Duvalier's son, Baby Doc, initiated a second wave of migration. His repressive policies incited the peasants, the political activists, and a major part of the middle class to emigrate to the Bahamas, Miami, New York, Montreal, and the French overseas departments. During the last decade, the third wave of migration went to Chile, Brazil, and again to the US and the DR. Now, approximately two to three million Haitians live abroad. Maybe half of them do so illegally. According to the World Bank, more than 64% of Haitians live in cities and more than 80% of all the Haitian university graduates, intellectual, professional, artists, live abroad. The absence of that middle class and the accelerated urbanization, meaning massive arrival of peasants to the unprepared city structures, is a big obstacle to economic development and the practice of democracy. There is no buffer between the have and the have not. The newcomers, have deforested their mountainous land or have sold it to come to the city. They squattered lands not suited for housing and created immense slums called ghettos and uncontrollable by the small police force. Once organized into neighborhood watch group, now they have become gang control territory for rapes, kidnappings, the smuggling of arms, ammunition, and drugs. From 86 to 2021, the repressive police and predator state have reached their expiration date. During that period, the donor country's strategy was to bypass the state and to finance PVOs and NGOs, depleting the government of its professional cadres and technicians. The weakening of the state public administration the brain drain and some measures of structural adjustments ruined the agricultural sector even further and accelerated the urbanization process and the dependency on the US and the DR for migrations. In 1990, Jean-Bertrand Aristide's election gave hope to the majority of the population that change had arrived, but his government was crushed seven months later by the military which established a paramilitary gang called FRAP, supported by the US to repress the popular movement. Three years later, I still was reestablished in power. 
In 2004, the U.S. intervened again, ousting Aristide for seven years in, in South Africa. Meanwhile, the U.N. deployed a peace-building mission with a military force of deterrence in all the regions of Haiti to stabilize the country. Under the MINUSTA, the mission of the United Nations for Haiti's uh, stabilization, President Preval and Martelly were able to complete their mandates. There was a massive and therefore unparalleled corruption of the Martelly Lamotte years, during which a good 1.5 to 2 billion of the approximately 3 billion of the Petro Caribe loans were stolen. So, this is the slogan is Code Cop Petro Caribe in every mouth. But still, the taxpayers of this already poor country will be called upon to repay over the next 20 years. Nor has been any focus reporting on the dismantlement by Jovenel Moïse of almost all the public institutions of this country, courts, electoral council, parliament, police, as a result of which his assassination has left us with this shell of state. The short-lived special envoy, Daniel Foote, made clear in his letter of resignation, then in his testimony before representative mixed foreign relations committees, that the US government imposed Martelly as president, turned a blind eye onto the aberrations of his governance and to the corruption, and finally to not allow a single election, local, parliamentary, or presidential, to take place during his five-year term, despite the near total control by his party of both houses of parliament, so no excuses are lowered regarding passage of election laws. Well, as the sign in the porcelain shop says, if you break it, you pay for it. The context has been marked during the last three years by violent political unrest and high crime, clashes between armed groups have claimed the lives of hundreds of people and displaced thousands of residents in the capital. For lack of sufficient resources, the Haitian National Police is inefficient. The deterioration of the country's economic condition, inflation at 20% and depreciation of the national good, as well as political unrest, have strongly affected food security in Haiti, a country highly exposed to natural disasters. The UN estimates that nearly a third of the population is in need of emergency food assistance in 2021. Since 2020, the political parties have been meeting to reach an agreement to replace Moïse on the end of his constitutional mandate, which should be on 7 of February on 2021. At that time, a group of civil society initiated a citizen movement to put pressure for change and contacted the political parties and all the organized sectors of the population to assume their responsibilities, to put aside the differences and engage in constructive dialogue to allow the election to be held in a peaceful atmosphere. On August 30th, at the Montana Hotel in Port-au-Prince, an agreement between civil society and the political and popular organizations was signed. This political accord is a process to find a Haitian solution. Haitian because initiated, conceived, supported, defended by Haitians within a democratic and ethical framework. In the absence of a legal, 
constitutional response to resolve the crisis of political power, the Montana Accord provides a moral and ethical legitimacy to equip the nation with leaders capable of creating the necessary climate for the holding of real elections. There is a vibrant civil society and progressive and democratic parties who have come together and who continue to convince people into dialogue. This Haiti, which wants to treat and cure its ills in order to progress irreversibly toward a well-being, towards better living together. And for that, yes, we need the support of the hemispheric authorities to set up a real transitional government whose roadmap, roadmap limits the powers constrained by the agreement and the constitution of 1987, and which will lay the foundation for the transformations necessary for the regeneration of our country. And it bears repeating with Eduardo Galeano until the death period, Haiti is the founding country of Latin American independence and the first in the world to outlaw slavery. It deserves much more than the notoriety due to disgrace. But the crisis will not be resolved if we don't find a common interest with the international community and mainly the US and the DR. In the first half of the 21st century, our common objective is to fix the Haitians in Haiti. This can necessitate a, a new deal or even a new Marshall Plan for Haiti, a plan that will build a green Haiti and mitigate the climate changes and promote nearshoring manufacturing facilities, a plan that will include the best brands of the diaspora. It would improve the lives of many now fleeing by establishing security and functioning government institutions and could finally pave the way for the long-term political and social stability that has el eluded the country for decades. Lastly, according to the United Nations, that's linked to what is called extreme weather with con will continue to grow as will the waves of migration that climate change is triggering. These deaths will also continue to grow. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime already indicated a couple of weeks ago that 80% of the world's population is hostage to organized gangs of diverse origin and destructive level. The metastasis of crime and the vulnerability of a growing population accelerated by climatic change undermine the Haitian government ability to control its territory and protect its inhabitants. This may provoke the collapse of the Haitian state before the middle of the century. Haiti cannot stop population exodus or control the growth of criminal activities in the country. Haitian citizens have lost confidence in the state's ability to protect them. This dissolution will affect directly the United States, the Dominican Republic, the Latin American and the Caribbean countries, and the French overseas departments. The challenges facing Haiti are immense and cannot be easily met without active coordination of international policies, leadership of American diplomacy, and close and sustained interaction 
with the main Haitian actors. Thank you very much. And that was the voice of Leslie Voltaire, really spelling out how Haitians on the ground have come together across uh, political parties, even across differences, uh, to put forward a Haiti um, not dominated uh, by the core group, not dominated uh, by the United States, France, Canada, um, the organization of American states. They have signed, come together and signed an agreement called the Montoya Agreement. We will, um, as soon as we can, um, get information on the Montoya Agreement uh, up on our website. <clears throat> and it remains to be seen whether the United States will basically uh, allow and support this democratic process with a transitional uh, government that Lavalas and other political parties, even some that, uh, as I said, they're not all on the same page, but what they do agree on is a Haiti rule by Haiti, a transitional government um, so that good governance can be established on the island. So we'll see how that goes. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And we're going to now uh, wrap our show up with uh, what is happening here, right here in the United States on women's right to choose. On Wednesday, December 1st, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a pivotal case that could result in the repeal of Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade, the 1973 landmark decision that protects a woman's right to have an abortion. Reports say the nation's top court seem poised to actually uphold a Mississippi law that bans abortion after just 18 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, by the way, some women don't know that they're pregnant by 18 weeks. However, according to the New York Times, the court's six-member conservative majority seemed divided on whether to um, stop at just establish the threshold at, for, at 15 weeks, for now at least, or whether to overrule the entire uh, Roe versus Wade, allowing states to ban abortions at any time or entirely. Now, Chief Justice John Roberts Jr. was the main voice on the right who seemed to want to go for a compromise, but the other uh, justices, including uh, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, I mean, the justices put in place by Donald Trump, and Donald Trump specifically had said that he wants to get rid of Roe versus Wade. Donald Trump also said that women who have abortion should be punished. Um, you know, what does that mean? So we'll see how that goes. The court's three liberal members, Justices uh, Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, and Sonia Sotomayor, they argued that Roe versus Wade uh, should stand. And uh, women... Uh, apparently very, very worried about this. By the way, the overwhelming majority of people in the United States in a recent uh, Washington Poll post uh, supports uh, keeping in place uh, Roe versus Wade. But let us go to our guest who has been in the trenches around these and other issues for uh, uh, some decades now, Loretta Ross, activist, public intellectual professor. She's been active in the women's movement uh, since the late 1970s. 
70s working at the first rape crisis center in the country um, and involving herself with women's human rights, reproductive justice, white supremacy, and women of color organizing. She also researched and fought hate groups such as the Ku Klux Klan and founded a national center for teaching people about their human rights. She co-founded a sister song and she also uh, recently testified at a hearing of the Committee on Oversight and Reform for examining the urgent need to protect and expand abortion rights and access in the United States. Um, and this was just uh, this past September. Loretta, so glad you're able to join us. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. And I'm so glad that we're still, you know, co-conspirators after all these decades. After all these decades, Loretta, yes, indeed, we have been in the trenches for a while. Now, um, Loretta, we've, th there's been a lot of press coverage clearly on this issue um, of reproductive rights. But I'm wondering, because we hear less about this, about the history of women of color, of women of color involvement in the reproductive uh, rights movement and what some of the challenges uh, women of color have faced, Loretta. Well, one of the myths that we're constantly fighting against is the perception that the movement for reproductive justice, for securing abortion rights, the right to use birth control, the right to control the size of, and placement of our families is a white women's issue. When in fact, starting with the genocide against Native American people and the enslavement of Africans, Women in those populations have been fighting for reproductive self-determination for the past 500 years, long before Margaret Sanger or anybody else came about. And so this myth, which centers on a white supremacist narrative that somehow these issues only become important or salient or matter when it comes to affecting white people, is one of the uphill battles that we have to fight. But notwithstanding that analysis, we also have to recognize that this entire assault on birth control and abortion is about manipulating the fertility of white women. We have this sec small sector of the white population that is fundamentally convinced that they are demographically doomed, that they're about to be overwhelmed by populations of color, and so they believe they have to coerce white women into having more babies by outlawing abortion and birth control. I am not convinced that they want more brown and black babies because they kill the ones that we have. It is about manipulating the demographics of the United States, as they've done for 500 years, to try to preserve a white majority, but, but they're fighting against truth, evidence, time, and feminist consciousness. So they actually aren't going to win, but they're going to cause a lot of people to suffer in their pathway towards defeat. Right. And, and Loretta, uh, so true. And the thing is, is that so many of the, the right, the right to lifers and, and those who uh, wax poetically about the rights of the unborn and of the fetus, et cetera, it seems 
to me and to many of us that once a child is born, they're ready to throw those children under the bus because uh, look at the lack of support uh, for mothers, in particular those who are who are low income. You know, you see the mortality, the birth infant uh, mortality rate in the United States, you know, dropping. And when it comes to issues of support for mothers, you know, they're not there. Where where are they? In fact, they attack um, mothers, particularly those who are most impoverished. And then there's the whole issue of forced sterilization of some of us. So Loretta, you remember all of us speaking out about the, the forced sterilization of, of black Puerto Rican and native uh, indigenous women back in the day. And now it's still going on uh, inside the prison. So Loretta Ross, it, it really seems hypocritical on so many different levels. Your thoughts on this? Well, well, let's connect the dots, because if they really cared about children, they'd do something about these guns and these mass massacres that our children are going through at their schools. So they don't care whether children live or die. They care about whether or not they can maintain power in a totally undemocratic way. That's their naked, raw ambition, and they believe that they either have to increase the number of the white population right out of citizenship, everybody who is non-white, and basically overthrow democracy so that they can set up a white-only republic within the boundaries of the United States. And they're trying all three of those strategies. So anyone that does not take an analysis around the ideology of white supremacy and apply it to reproductive politics is underperforming in terms of understanding what is really going on. Yeah, and Loretta, even within the reproductive uh, rights movement, as it is, I mean, you'd have the the organizations that for a long time, well, were mainly white dominated, narrow, and and uh, then even Planned Parenthood. At some point, Planned Parenthood did have a a, a black woman uh, at the helm, uh, and you know, she it seemed, from what I recall, wanted to you know to focus, uh, bring more into focus um, the specific impacts on women of color and um, the the right to have children, and the right also to an abortion, and the right to have children. So tell us about the, those struggles and, and some of the reasons. I mean, you were, you founded uh, Sister Song, Women of Color uh, Reproductive um, Justice Coalition. Why did you feel the need uh, to do that? And um, what do you think we need to be doing right now? We've, we've got about four minutes left for, for this discussion, Loretta. Yeah, first of all, we have to have a much more robust and complicated analysis. I was one of 16 women who co-founded Sister Song, so it wasn't totally on my shoulders. But we did so because we needed to organize and, and present the perspectives of women of color who worked on reproductive health rights and justice issues because we recognize that we're much stronger together if we did collectively what we could not do individually. And so we presented the framework of reproductive justice that started challenging uh, the the underdeveloped pro-choice and pro-life narratives that did not address the human rights violations that were pre-existing in people's lives long before a pregnancy even became an issue. And so I'm very proud to have participated 
and collaborated with 15 other women to put reproductive justice on the map through Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. But I also want to be fair to our allies like Planned Parenthood and NARAL. They, they have their left right wing, their right wing, and their center, too. And so when, you, when we talk about who, how, who and how we partner with them, it's usually the more progressive wings of those movements that women of color most successfully partner with. And we just can't assume that the conservative wings of those movements are all they are uh, to those organizations. Right. And you, you also um, have uh, been involved in the fact that uh, black women in the South are facing uh, such a, a great danger. Black women three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy related causes uh, than uh, white women. And in some Mississippi counties, um, according to uh, what Sister Song says, black women are more likely to die in childbirth than women in sub-Saharan Africa, and that Texas now has the highest maternal mortality rate in the quote-unquote developed world. You don't hear a whole lot heck about this from the so-named um, right to life uh, movement. Uh, Loretta, your your final thoughts, and, uh, uh, it, and, and do you agree that it looks as though the Supreme Court indeed will strike down uh, Roe versus Wade? Any, any final thoughts from you on all this? Loretta Ross. Well, I'm not so sure that they're going to strike it down. I think they're going to continue to whittle away at it <clears throat> because the, the right wing is equally concerned about arousing a backlash. Whenever they take away and attack people's human rights like that, that actually decreases the likelihood of them staying in power. You know, they have to lie and obfuscate. When they come out directly and try to take away women's human rights or gay rights or any of those other things, that actually mobilizes us to kick them out of office. So I'm not so sure they're going to go that far. But they can do incrementally this whittling away, going after our most vulnerable parts of our base. And that's what I actually think they're going to do. Right. And uh, of course, we know that there are organizations like Black Women for Wellness that's that's based in, in Southern California and others that are working on these issues. Now, Loretta, there, there is analysis about the impact of what the Supreme Court does. I mean, we won't know until like in the spring, right? June or something like that, what their decision is going to be. Not till the summer. Okay, so then this is all going to be mixed up in the midterm elections. So they exactly. must be calculating, you know, because right now we see how the right wing, they feel that they did a good job with winning back uh, white suburban women in Virginia. Uh, who voted uh, for the the Republican uh, candidate there. So they're really very concerned about holding on uh, to the vote of white suburban women. So you may very well be right that they may figure, well, let's not go too far. We know where we're heading, but let's do it in, in, in steps. But that certainly wasn't cl clear in the debate that happened uh, yesterday. So Loretta Ross. The problem that yeah. they have is is that their only strategy is to successfully mobilize around white supremacy. And, and they won in Virginia because there are more white people ready to defend white supremacy than oppose it. 
Right, yeah, and and all this concern about, oh, critical race theory, we just can't let our, our little children learn about the truth of genocide of indigenous people or, or the slave trade. That's just too emotionally upsetting. I mean, give me a break. But Loretta Ross, you have been in the trenches for, for so many years now. I really appreciate you, appreciate your work, and for you taking the time to join us. But we're, we're out of time. Girl, we're going to have to catch up some more and 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 talk about uh some of these issues further thank you loretta well thank you good luck uh, okay thanks uh okay we are out of time here um this is margaret prescott today's show produced by me i want to thank uh graham uh, fitzgibbon who stepped in at the last minute uh sitting in for romero uh, funes who will, will be away for a couple of days thank you so much uh graham i also want to thank uh wendell handy our engineer for uh today if you'd like a copy of today's show contact the pacifica radio archives i'm gonna have to uh dash but sojourner truth will be back on the air tomorrow with our weekly roundtable our regular team is back you won't want to miss that thank you for listening this is your host margaret prescott and you all please remember to stay safe